So come, whether you have much faith or little, have tried to follow or are afraid you've failed. Come because it is his will that those who want to meet him might meet him here. Welcome to From the Narthex, a podcast about faith, life, and Anglicanism. This is your host, Ryan. And today on the pod, we have some special guests joining us from the Diocese of Brandon. We have with us today the Venerable Lydia Constant and the Reverend Dr. Kara Mandrick joining us from Henry Budd College in the Paw. Welcome, Lydia and Kara. So on this podcast, this is a podcast uh, from St. Thomas Weston in Winnipeg. And uh, the original vision of it was that we would have these great conversations in the narthex of the church, um, kind of bringing together the world and the church. But then, well, we've been in this pandemic the whole time. So what this has allowed us to do is to kind of think more broadly and reach out to guests from a bit farther afield. So I'm very happy to have you on today. Uh, a kind of a benefit of, of lockdown here is to be able to reach you digitally. And on this podcast, the kind of the first question we ask all of our guests is, what does faith mean to you? So maybe uh, if I could get Lydia to answer first and then uh, Kara after. Well, I grew up in uh, on this uh, community of Ocean. And when I was a child, uh, I used to go to church every Sunday. And it was twice a day they prayed and 30 and in the afternoon. And um, so um, that's where my faith started because we, it was a routine that we did in, in praying and learning. And it was all, a lot of uh, lay readers were pre-speaking people. And so uh, a very fluid in Greek. And um, so all those functions that you you went through it, and the churches used to be not like today now. It's mm -hmm. kind of a but we still pray. And so all these years, my faith was uh, very strong, and uh, and observing the the people that are, you know, their prayers, and they're very strict too. <laughs> they were very strict. Uh, when you're in a church, you can't, um, you can't turn your head back to see who's coming in. And I was very strict from the elders. You couldn't, and you just had to focus. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> and that was very, um, that's how we uh, learn about that. So you talk about the the elders enforcing a kind of a, a strict worship style would these have been um indigenous elders in the church then that were doing that that wasn't coming from the priests it was coming more from the elders that was with the elders that's what they were taught to i guess <laughs> all right yeah mm -hmm. interesting and and did that did that carry out that kind of um 
uh, strict practice of prayer, did that carry out into mm -hmm. your normal life? Um, yeah, or was that here for the church building? Yeah. Now we're different. <laughs> we're not that strict anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things have relaxed, hey? Eh? Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. Uh, Kara, what does, what does faith mean to you? I think that the, the idea of faith to me, it can be summed up in like a lived commitment. Mm -hmm. So thinking about, thinking about a commitment, like there is choice, there is discipline, there is covenant that is part of faith, but it's also lived. So there are beliefs and behaviors that are part of faith too. Um, and of course, that could be faith in anything. Um, for me, obviously, faith in, in Jesus means uh, an active living commitment to walking in the ways of Jesus. So yeah, a lived commitment, which encompasses um, behavior, belief, activity, covenant, all of those things. Allegiance. Allegiance. I like that. A lived commitment. That's great. All right. So the reason why I've asked to speak to you both today is because, uh, and I mentioned this at the top, you're both involved in something called uh, Henry Budd College. Uh, can, Kara, maybe can you just give a very quick synopsis off the top of what Henry Budd College is, and then uh, maybe we'll turn to Lydia and we'll hear a bit about how that came to be. Yes, uh, Lydia would be the right person because she's been involved in Henry Budd College for Ministry every step of the way. Um, so the college was founded in the Paw, Manitoba as a diocesan college in the Diocese of Brandon, uh, purposely for the education, theological education and ministry, ministry training of Indigenous Anglicans in the northwestern part of Manitoba. And it was founded in 1980. Uh, and we have been, been active in both lay and uh, clergy ministry training, theological education since that time. And we pretty much, we do, I, I like to say we do education on three kind of levels. One, anyone can take a course. Anyone who's interested, you don't have to be Anglican, you don't have to be indigenous. We always um, prefer and privilege Indigenous voices and ways of knowing, but you don't have to be Anglican or Indigenous to take a course and learn together. So we actually have sometimes a very diverse learning circle for interested people. Um, our second level of education would be we offer um, essentially a diploma in ministry. So for people who want to do either lay or move into ordained ministry, we have kind of a program of um, ministry training that we follow. And then our third level is we have a partnership, a long-standing partnership with the um, Indigenous Studies Program at Vancouver School of Theology. So any of our students who want to go on to take Masters of Divinity work, they we have a partnership with uh, the ISP Indigenous Studies Program at Vancouver School of Theology. I serve as a tutor and they also have an Indigenous summer school. So we either go there to take courses or students can take courses here and be tutored by myself or others who have taken their MDiv, like Lydia, who has her Master's of Divinity from VST. So um, we offer a whole bunch of different kind of education. In addition to that, we do support for local churches and a lot of resource development. 
Very good. So Lydia, uh, having grown up in the PAW, and um, for our listeners, it's Lydia's birthday today. Uh, so she's giving up her time to to give us all of the years of her experience on this, her, her birthday. Um, can you just tell us a bit of, of how this college came to be? Uh, I read on the website that you've kind of been involved in it since the beginning, so. Well, I came on board in, uh, in 1983. Okay. And um, that was the time um, uh, I lost my husband and um, he died of uh, suicide. And so um, that was, ha it happened in uh, January. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in September, I came on board, I walked in. And I was standing over there and I said, I'm just here for a little while. I'll be gone for a while. I'll be gone for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Never say that. <laughs> Lifer, yeah. <laughs> they, were, uh, they were having a class over there. And so uh, I sat down and one of my um, my cousins was doing uh, their lesson or their class. Eh? And I started to look over and I start helping her with the answers, just like that. And I know what happens there, the spirit of the Lord was upon me. <laughs> and so I, that's where I got hooked on. And uh, and I'm still here. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, did, so did you start enrolling in classes at that point yeah, then? Yeah, yes. yeah. I started to uh, doing those and uh, all the courses that have been happening, I did them. And very, I was very faithful to them and all this, and that I wanted to learn more and more. And so um, I graduated from the first level of it, and I started teaching right away, too. I started teaching that for communities and so forth, and uh, while I was doing my, my class, my, my work to it. And so uh, I uh, got hired to 19. Henry Bud College changed over the years? Like, because um, I know the Anglican Church of Canada has come a long ways on, on how it interacts with uh, Indigenous people. So I imagine from 1980 to today, there's been some significant shifts at, at Henry Bud as well. There were quite a few, quite a few uh, ordination happened from here. Oh, okay. And then, uh, and then each community had their own Indigenous uh, priest. And so it's just about all of them, but not quite. <laughs> there were some that uh, didn't have, but they were 
traveling and all that. And so, and uh, when I became an, uh, an archdeacon and so forth, so I never had a parish, I never had a parish though, because I was always traveling, traveling holidays right. and all that. And so just three years ago, I, I, um, I uh, was called to be a, you know, priest in charge in my, in my own reserve this time. So I've been there for three years now, so. And I really enjoyed it out to, to be a parish person. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, um, uh, I was an hospital chaplain too, the lady from here. Okay. Yeah, I think my, I took my training in Winnipeg to be a, you know, Hospital, you know, yeah, um, the chaplaincy. I wanted to be a chaplain, but I got told all over the place again. Right. So, um, I was even asked to be a bishop, but uh, I wasn't my calling. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't want that headache, eh? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Well. I've been a priest for three years now, so yeah. So off the off the top of the show, I referred to you as the venerable. Can you explain to some of our listeners what what that title means? Well, we were traveling along on the road. Uh, one of the bishops said, and then uh, she asked me about that. And sometimes he asked me to be a bishop, and then they said, "What about a venerable?" You know, you know. I didn't really know what that means, but I found out what it means. <laughs> and so uh, that's how I became uh, to be the leader for, for, uh, for all Aboriginal priests and work together. And uh, it was really working out good thanks to us. I contact them and all that and work with them and everything, you know, really uh, signed by them and, you know, all those things that you help out with them and so we we had a good a good relationship at that time something happens and fell through as always right. yeah. yeah so we kind of uh but there's still there's still a lot of us that are we're, we're together and so forth you know Right. I wonder, Ryan, is, is it okay if I interject and just for sure. your listeners who don't know um, the kind of the geography of the Diocese of Brandon, we yeah. are uh, kind of long and skinny, right? We go um, south to north, all the way from the southern part of, of western Manitoba, all the way up through um, the north, through uh, Dauphin, Swan River, the Paw, we extend into Thompson and up to Churchill. And so in our diocese, there, the, the northern part of what we call the Pod Deanery, which is basically the northern half of, of our diocese, is uh, largely Indigenous parishes, either Indigenous communities or in, in towns, and even the, the, many of the parishes and towns are, are mixed. And so it's been important, I think, for many bishops to have an Indigenous archdeacon in, in, this, um, in this archdeaconry, in this deanery. Uh, just exactly because of what Lydia said, to be able to communicate in heart language, as well as to be able to be in communities that the bishop like just doesn't have access to, not because they're close, but because of distance mm -hmm. and traveling. So that's right. just that gives you context too. Yeah, so, so you provide kind of a, an oversight and a go-between between the bishop and uh, the Cree-speaking Cree priests in particular, but also kind of everybody in the North? Yes. Yeah. So. Now there have been some changes to um, 
and, and I think maybe these are still being developed, but General Synod a few years ago uh, passed kind of a new, uh, what, what do you call it, a, a new canon, I guess, creating uh, this fifth ecclesial province for indigenous um, Anglicans. And I was just wondering uh, how kind of your part of, you know, the, the deanery of the paw and and kind of your your ministry in the north how does that fit into this new or is that something that's uh not quite clear yet yeah well i i Lily and i are kind of looking at each other here because it i don't think any of it's clear in the entire nation yet how this is all going to play out um but in the in our deanery in the diocese when it comes to indigenous ministries i mean that I guess you could just call it ministries. Like that's that's kind of that's kind of the ministry here. And so many of the people, Lydia included, over the years have been laboring to have indigenous representation, indigenous leadership, indigenous ways of of um, decision making, and and that kind of thing. So this is what some people, like including Lydia and others, have been doing. How the new self-determining church is going to find mm -hmm. uh, foot, uh, footholds or whatever here is we don't know mm -hmm. but there I think and you can correct me if I'm wrong Lydia but I think that there is a very uh, well-prepared ground here for that ministry mm -hmm. to grow and to flourish yeah. just yeah. because of the work that Lydia and others have been doing over the last three decades yeah. right so so you say that uh, quite a lot of the priests in, in the area uh, receive their training at Henry Bud. Is, does that continue to be true today? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We do have a territory or uh, our speaking. Yeah. Yeah, we do have one. Okay. Yeah. And who is who is that currently? Uh, Reverend Michael Chartrand from Easterville. Okay. Yeah. Here are territorial. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a retired one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there not only venerable, but also emeritus. So add uh, onto weird word. Right. Yeah. At, we like uh, I think Stanley Harwas once said that that Anglicans let no pretension go unused. So just slap on the extra uh, Latin when you can. It's it's always good. <laughs> You know, one of the things about wonderful things about being an Anglican and living out our faith here for me personally is that it is um, not pretentious at all. Right? <laughs> we are so far from the seats of power in many ways. And I don't know, I can't speak for anyone else, but I like it that way because we can be real and we don't have to put on any kind of airs. Um, there is an authenticity of faith and life uh, that is. That, that we engage in on a daily and, and weekly basis that, sorry, that's probably not part of your conversation, but I just- Oh, I just no, that's good. Being here because of that. Yeah. Well- I really, and, I really love her. <laughs> <laughs> I, that was one of the things I was wondering about because, um, well, Henry Budd is, uh, Henry Budd College is kind of far removed from the seats of power, if you will. Uh, and I, I wonder, how much freedom that has given you over the years to to innovate, um, and I, I don't know. It, are there things that that you folks 
have developed over the years kind of approaches to ministry or approaches to education that you're now seeing other people pick up on or just just talk a little bit about that history oh that's i don't know do you have a thought about that what, about this the kind of way we do education here that that is that finds its ripple effect other places or even if if you're still the only one doing it i would like to hear what kind of what you guys do up there that's unique it's COVID, they don't, we can't do much. <laughs> that, that, although we have been meeting a little bit, but yeah. We still have a little bit of it and all that, but we still, uh, we still try to, uh, how you say, promote everything like uh, in part of education. So just like, uh, we just finished it, uh, we just finished that teachers for free. So that was very interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, what, what is that? Tell us about that. It's just hard to break. Uh, it's uh, looking at the, the Lord's Prayer individually, the sentence, and then we talk about it in Greek, what it really means. And so uh, we put two of those, the Lord's Prayer, and the, the Greek part in English. So it's kind of interesting that too. So uh, Kara thought that, and uh, and uh, not the Cree part. Not the Cree part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how's how's your Cree coming along, Kara? <laughs> um, I have a couple of phrases and uh, animals, some animals. <laughs> I've been uh, rather undisciplined in in my Cree learning, and Lydia's always like t asking me to repeat things just <laughs> so she doesn't let me get away with that um, but you know this is actually what you said Lydia is a really good example of what 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 Ryan's question was because it's it's it was hard to think of an example I think because it's just so natural that mm. part of the education here has always happened in English and Cree yes and mm. that that maybe is unique in yeah. many places I know that there are places like um Kingfisher Lake, the William Winter School, where they do a lot of Cree teaching yeah. um, or OG Cree, you know, up there. But here, it's always been part of the uh, dynamic or the ethos of the college, as I understand it, that there are English speakers and English teachers and Cree teachers and Cree translators. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one element that I think is, I don't know if it's unique, but it's important to what we do. Another mm -hmm. element is learning in the circle, mm -hmm. which of course is a very, I mean, we, we we know, right, that that's a very kind of yeah. indigenous way of, of knowing. Mm -hmm. I, when people ask me, you know, outside of this scenario, people ask me about the education here, I say it's a very uh, dialogical or, or conversational education. And it really reminds me of um, something Bishop Mark, uh, Archbishop Mark had taught when I first came here. Um, and he talked about indigenous education and how um, a lot of that is not about um, there are people who are empty vessels that you load information into, rather the people around the circle have so much knowledge and understanding and learning mm -hmm. and our task as teachers or as um, elders, I guess, is to draw that knowledge out to maybe give language to ideas um, and to, to connect them. But people have, they have their knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's no empty vessels here that we're <laughs> putting information into. So I think that's, that. I don't know if that's unique, but it's something that's a, an important value, I think, of the education we do here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One other thing I wanted, because Lydia is probably too <laughs> humble to mention this, 
but um, you, you talked about things that are unique. Um, and I had said that we're doing resource development. One of the things that Lydia and I worked on a couple of years ago was a, or about a year ago, was a um, marriage preparation course. So we were doing um, development and Lydia has been doing marriage preparation for, you know, 30 odd years and has developed her own way of doing that in English and Cree. And so we just sat down and she talked to me through what the way she does marriage preparation and I put it into a little course. One of the um, features of that course is a teaching that Lydia developed for, for couples about to be married that looks at the seven sacred teachings of um, her people and the seven deadly sins and how those uh, interact in a marriage and how relationships can you know, be, be wonderful or be broken down if, if depending on what you feed. Um, so it's that kind of thing. So I don't know if that's yeah. like not spreading nationwide, but it's something right. that that's that's really interesting to me can you give me a, an example of one of these pairings one uh, one pairing between the the sacred teachings and the deadly sins well i talk about that i put the deadly sins first and then we talk about them each what it means the couples should have you and uh, and these are the ones that can break the marriages the marriage on the other hand there's is always that those sacred teachings that can help that are very important as the characteristics of a of a married life of people. So it's very uh, very unique thing and very sacred. And uh, and a lot of uh, couples open their eyes and it's just you know they really love that uh, the way I do this because I, I do it on a board and I as I speak. Uh, so we, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. I'll have to get a copy of that from you at some point, because uh, this this past winter, I taught a little Lent course for a few parishes on um, kind of the, the mystical tradition, focusing largely on a, on a fellow named Evagrius Ponticus, uh, who is one of the Desert Fathers. And it's kind of actually from him that the idea of the seven deadly sins emerges. He didn't talk about it in terms of seven deadly sins. He talked about it in terms of kind of eight words or eight logosmoi, he called them in, in Greek. Um, and these would be things that kind of passions or even demons, he would call them, that would come to attack you. Uh, and over the years, uh, this would then develop and evolve into, uh, I think Gregory the Great kind of formalized them as the seven, seven deadly sins, but they kind of start with him. And when you look at how he teaches his brothers um, in the in the monastery how to deal with them, it's it's a lot of kind of holding up virtues and holding up kind of uh, practices to counter them, and he's got specific ones. So um, I I'm just fascinated when to hear you say that because I think a lot of times uh, some of us might have heard of the seven deadly sins as just something to beat you over the head with guilt about, um, but what you're kind of um, describing I think really gets back to this really ancient tradition. Of, of confronting um, vice with virtue again. This is where Gera comes in too, but it's really, uh, he's just, you know, he's just, <laughs> he's not typing everything. <laughs> so it's really very uh, unique in that way, develop, developing a, and work with the representation into her language and all that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I imagine um, doing that translation between kind of different languages and different systems of thought 
has probably taught you both a lot. Um, could you could you both share kind of one thing recently that just by hearing an idea that you think about in your language being kind of expressed to you in in the other person's kind of way of formulating what, what is something kind of recently that you've you've learned from one another in that kind of translation work or not marriage or uh or just <laughs> just ge <laughs> generally whatever kind of comes to mind first where we just finished you know and um is uh it's kind of an eye-opener for us too as aboriginal peoples what uh what is really meaning the real meaning of it you know and so it was kind of a a very good thing to, to have that you know like you know and i told gary said well we should start another one something <laughs> uh, maybe our husband just finished the revelation so maybe we'll do that <laughs> <laughs> and so I think, you know, that's, it's really a continuing education. You never, you never stop. There's always something coming up. Yeah. Right. Kara, what's something that you've learned from, from Lydia in that work of translation, hearing, hearing kind of a concept rethought in Cree for you? Yeah, I mean, there are really so many and I will say, like generally speaking, um, I opt when I when I'm reflecting or someone's asking me about my work here compared to my you know so-called former life of teaching university students or college students, um, or or the sense of did you do you regret leaving or whatever? Um, I often quote this. There's a line in an old Sarah Grove song. The, the song is called "Painting Pictures of Egypt," but the line um, the line that really speaks to me is um i've just oh my gosh i've just forgotten the, I'm, I'm going through the songs da, da, da. so um the places that used to fit me cannot hold the things i've learned the places mm. that used to fit me cannot hold the things i've learned and that really sums sums up my experience living and working here working with lydia and other um elders and, and leaders in the church um so a a, a specific example of that is just a, a way of thinking that involves community. And the idea of, of listening to everyone in the circle, the idea that everyone has something to contribute, the idea that I, um, with my learning, only have one small piece of the puzzle when it comes to community leadership, those things are really essential to my way of being now um, that, that I think just weren't ever brought out before. And the value system of, I think that, that, that Lydia and other Cree clergy and lay people I've interacted with, the value system of um, community being the foundation of, of everything that we do. So how do, and, and these things, like when it comes to decision-making, for example, having community, um, I don't know what you call it, community involvement and buy-in takes a long time. It's not expedient, it's not efficient, and it's sometimes not even practical, but it will produce um, a beautiful gathering and a beautiful um, result when you take in people's voices and you listen. Mm -hmm. So I guess listening, even though I've been talking a lot, I guess listening is probably the, the one of the things that are really, that is really significant. Um, my learning from Lydia, because I'm, you know, as a, as a, as a teacher, 
for, for many, many, many years, my first instinct is to talk, <laughs> right. to explain, to ask questions, to draw out. And um, here, my first instinct must be to listen. Yeah, I've been, I've been reading, I just started reading yesterday and was reading right before uh, we started this call, a book by Jean-Louis Chrétien. He was a, a French uh, philosopher, just passed away a couple of years ago, taught at the Sorbonne, and he starts his book, The Arc of Speech, with this line. It stopped me dead in my tracks. He said, how far does our hospitality go? How far can it go? What can we welcome and gather in and how? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and as you, as you talk, um, it, it just sounds like that's the work that Henry Bud College has been engaged in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Kara, this might be a good point since you, you mentioned the places you've been before. Just to say a brief word, I, I know you because you were a professor of mine at Providence yeah. and uh, we've stayed in contact over the years. Just really briefly, um, what, what kind of prompted this move for you from being kind of uh, a professor at a Southern university and then all of a sudden you're a priest and you're in the north and you're doing this completely different thing. Um, I know that's like a huge uh, transition, but maybe just kind of a, a quick outline of how you found yourself up here in the, in the north uh, at Henry Budd College. Uh, thanks, Ryan, for uh, giving me a brief moment to talk about the most <laughs> change in my life. Um, <laughs> I, I, I knew Ryan when he was but a young lad of 18, so we've had a long history together um, and journeyed, and I've just really appreciated to watch your growth too. But for me, um, I was the Associate Professor of Worship and Spirituality at Providence and loved, loved, loved my job. It was, it was a very meaningful um, job and, and life there. And uh, through... Oh my gosh, again, this is a long story, but um, here's, here's the linchpin. One summer I went to visit uh, a friend in France and my brother in England and I took a week off and went to Teze because I had some questions for God and I wanted, I want, I wanted some answers, right? And so I kind of saw it as um, kind of like a Hezekiah moment, you know, when he gets that letter and he takes it and lays it out and says, okay, God, you gotta do something about this. Um, I had a couple of questions for God that I literally wrote on a journal page and laid it out and said, okay, I would, I would like to know direction. And one of those questions was about ordination because many people had um, in my Anglican parish, I was not a cradle Anglican. Um, I was uh, baptized in the United Church of Canada and through evangelical churches and I made my way to the Anglican Church of Canada, which is a whole other story. Um, but uh, people had asked me about ordination and moving towards the priesthood, and I, I just didn't know how to respond to that. And another question I had, I was um, living very happily as a, a single woman, and I wanted to know from God if that was a calling uh, that I could actually celebrate publicly, or what, what that was, or was it just like incidental. Um, so anyway, I had these questions, and I laid them out before God at Teze. And I didn't get any immediate answers, obviously that summer, but I came back and I kept working. And um, in August, my priest at the time, um, he was just weirdest talking one day and he said, Kara, I really think you should think about ordination. 
So I felt like that was kind of an answer because I said to God, I'd really like my priest to invite me into that. You know, being raised up from the community, that's a value that is really important. I don't decide, the community helps me decide, um, which I didn't even know at that time, right? And then a couple months later, um, a colleague had introduced, asked me uh, if I would like to meet this person um, named Keith Hyde. And it was actually the, the, the third time in five years that someone had told me I should meet him. So I figured that was also the Holy Spirit. Um, so fast forward uh, two years later, I was ordained um, as a transitional deacon. And then three weeks later, I married Keith. <laughs> who happened to be um, a university professor at University College of the North in Nepal. So we spent our first year of marriage apart from one another, just trying to discern and decide uh, what direction our married life would take. And we came to the conclusion that uh, it was time for me to have a new adventure. And so I, I moved up here to Nepal. I did not have a job, so I stayed employed half time with Providence going back and forth teaching. Um, a couple of years later, the board at Henry Budd College asked me if I would take on the leadership here for a short contract, 18 months, I think. I did that. Um, at the end of that, they um, asked me to increase my hours and increase my contract. I think the archdeacon said maybe 30 years. I said, let's try five. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so They're trying to lock you in for life. <laughs> So anyway, that's that's the uh, that's the not so short, but actually very short version of the journey that has led me here, and um, it is nothing I would have ever uh, asked or imagined to make uh, to quote something really important. But uh, I, it is a gift. It is a gift that has been given to me, and I uh, I am so thankful, and I am so changed by that. Yeah. Now I. I think that's great. And I would have never um, even heard about Henry Budd College if it wouldn't have been for you kind of going on this adventure. And I feel like I've kind of grown and learned a lot from kind of like following along with you at a distance, perhaps, uh, on, on this. Um, one of the things I would like you both to think about now, Kara, from your perspective as a, kind of a white settler and somebody trained to teach in of a, a conventional university setting and Lydia as somebody who has done a lot of teaching uh, all over the north right you're kind of always been on the road what are some of the challenges that um, that you've both experienced teaching at Henry Budd College um, like what what are some of the, the the things that have had to be overcome in your ministry there well uh uh, is it, uh, we I traveled into the communities uh, and then the local people we use this church I mean this everybody but most of the time I, I traveled into and that was kind of a hard when you travel these gravel roads and all that mm. the snow and all that and so forth and um, I did uh, I used to work uh, 90 hours uh, in a week. Wow. <laughs> so I did have a, I did have a burnout. <laughs> but I recovered again and all that. And then I started again. <laughs> <laughs> Back to work. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so there was, um, that's the only, that, that the teaching was okay. 
that always the student is waiting at, you know, in their home community there. And so we, and sometimes we do it at their homes, wherever, okay. wherever it's okay, we, we did it wherever. <laughs> and so um, I go along with them where they wanted to, to be. And then we, and these are evening classes, not day, not a day. <laughs> you yeah. start at six and then you finish at nine or 10 and then you come home. And then right. you for a while and then you get up again and do your own work again. So it was kind of a, it was kind of, you know, but the yeah, problem so was with me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that would be kind of very different. Uh, like I think a lot of the time, um, the assumption at every university I've ever been a part of is that students come to you, um, but you have gone out to them. Uh, have there been things that Henry Budd has been able to do to kind of help you in terms of like resources with that? Or, um, you know, there's just a lot of things that when you're at a campus, you have access to books and technology and whiteboards and things that you wouldn't necessarily have with you on the road. And what are, some of the ways that you've been able to kind of overcome those things? Well, I think uh, another thing that uh, we have uh, good people here that are very care teaching us, you know, I've been working with all the, uh, what do you call them? Uh, directors? The directors here, you know, with, uh, you know, Gra what's, what's his first one there? Uh, Bruce, Bruce Cowan and his wife, Allison. So I work with them and so forth. And then um, we had, um, uh, what is his name? Uh, uh, Fletcher Stewart. And uh, I, I didn't work the, the very first one. Uh, I think it was at Chapman. Chapman. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then, uh, and then uh, Paul and his wife, Marion. And then Kara now. So, you know, all these uh, directors, they were good. And, uh, and so they were teaching and everything else about this college. And, and I like working with them. And sometimes I like to retire and, and leave her, but I have this right That's why I keep baking for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, this is a beautiful place to be, a beautiful place to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, how about for you, Kara? Um, you know, I, I imagine the learning curve was a bit steep at first. Yes, uh, in for for a number of reasons. Um, obviously, culturally is the the primary reason. All of the people that Leah just listed that have been the coordinators. I mean, there's a bit different names, right? Principal, coordinator, whatever um, of this college director um, are white people, and so that is. I mean, my, what I would love is to kind of like grow myself out of a job really and and have indigenous leadership and and partner with that um and we do that of course in our board and with our teaching uh teachers and our lydia is a college elder she serves as an elder for the college um but so so we've all had that cultural learning so i'll give you just generally like uh, well, i'll give you a specific example um we have to be flexible when we plan uh, events, whether it's like workshops, seminars, or courses, especially seminars or workshops where you have like a two or three day event and you're bringing someone in. We, for example, we had one a couple of years ago 
and um, we were all ready. It's so exciting. You've got everything in place. And then um, an elder passes on and everything changes because that's where the community goes to care for the family, to care for the community. And so we had to relocate our, our seminar and it was um, a wonderful seminar, but not so wonderfully attended because for, for particularly for elders, you would uh, typically have a two day wake and then a funeral on the third day. And so that's, a, that's just a cultural value that you have to be uh, kind of flexible and nimble with and not get disappointed. So, I mean, it, it, it's a little bit, um, when, when, we, when I plan like a, a, an event, when we're bringing somebody in, because mm -hmm. rescheduling for just us is, is one thing, but when you're bringing somebody in and you've got this event planned, which we have been doing, I, I do earnestly pray like that no one will die not also because we don't like, you know, death, but right. yeah. that does actually shift everything. And, and for someone like me, who is a white person, uh, maybe more of a type A personality, I'd be like, but we put all this effort into it and someone's coming. Um, but that's not the value. That's not the core and primary value that we are living out of. So that's a really, that's a very specific example of uh, a learning curve or uh, a cultural difference mm -hmm. that uh, is really important to pay attention to. So to hold everything we plan fairly loosely because things can change. Now, I think the rest of the world understands that now because of COVID, right? <laughs> you just hold things loosely because things will change. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that's a value that, that was really, I found a challenge. I will also say in, on, a, like, on like a very personal level, that oftentimes being the only non-Indigenous person in a group of Indigenous people, not just here at the college, but because of my role, I actually have opportunities to do teaching and serve on um, committees uh, uh, throughout the country, like um, nationwide. So um, I often am the one of the only non-Indigenous people in a committee meeting or in a teaching circle, and I am constantly wondering if I should say something or not. It's a very destabilizing position to be in um, and it's very uncomfortable, uh, which makes it a very good place of learning for me because yeah. I always want to, to privilege others' voices and to lift up others' voices. Um, but it also comes at a like, like, should I say something? What, how am I gonna be perceived? Like there's always a lot of second guessing for me in some of those scenarios, um, even if I've been invited, right? And the invitation is very important, but even when I've been invited, it's, um, it's destabilizing in a difficult way, but I think ultimately in a good way, in a way that people of color have probably felt destabilized for many, many, many centuries. So yeah. I guess it's my turn and that's a good thing. Yeah, uh, Willie Jennings uh, wrote a book last year called After Whiteness, and I'd highly recommend it to all our listeners. Um, but it talks about the pedagogical formation of theological education for, for folks, for those of us who've gone through it, uh, I saw myself uh, indicted in, in those pages because it said, well, the whole purpose is to train you to be a master. Uh, that you always confidently have something to say and expect to be listened to and heard. Uh, and it's really hard to put that assumption away again. 
mm-hmm. um, when you've, you know, when you've spent the better over a decade being formed in those spaces and then to say, no, I'm not in charge anymore. Um, so I'm still grappling with that book. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that, well, that you've been grappling with, with those things as well. I, I wanted to end on, um, on just a reflection about the future. Uh, COVID has made the future this elusive hope, uh, but perhaps the future has always been an elusive hope, actually. Uh, but I'm just wondering, given kind of the work that you've done uh, and the fruit that has come of it, what what would one kind of hope that you would have for the ministry of Henry Bud College uh, for both of you be going forward? For me, uh, I, uh, I would like to see... Um more, uh, you know, youth or uh, middle-aged people that can carry on with, uh, with the education and to be, to be leaders. And uh, because I see that a lot of us are aging now and um, I that I talked to her about that uh, once in a while. That uh, how do we how do we do it to bring the people from Reserve, the youth or the Middle East people to get interested in what we were interested in, why we are here today, and so um, we try that. But sometimes we have we go to the mall and sit there and advertise our stuff and all this and. So I try to, you know, bring people in to, uh, to come in here and, you know, to do that, <laughs> to do the ministry for the future. That's my, yeah. my opinion. <laughs> yeah. As an, as an elder, I know traditionally, you, you even talk about as a, as a young child, how the elders were very influential on you. Do you find that the youth still... Um, honor elders and, and listen to them in the same way as when you were coming up? Yeah, quite a few are like that, and quite a few are not, you know. The right. but, but same as a, as a race in order to, you know. But some of them are really uh, still, they still bring their children to be baptized and all that, and they still come to church and so forth here and there, you know. I try to fright them sometimes. Uh, I don't want to scare them away, but <laughs> I get to come. <laughs> I'm a very, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> I try, uh, I'm happy to be persistent to a person <laughs> to be, you know, to come and experience it, you know, you know but uh, that's the, you know, that's what I like to see. Anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks. But maybe our prayers will be answered. Yes. Well, yes, we can pray for, for the youth to get involved. Absolutely. Kara, how about, how about for you? What, what is something, what's kind of a goal? I know you spoke to this a bit about working yourself out of a job, uh, but um, perhaps what are some other kind of goals that you have for the future of Henry Budd? Well, I think we, we've talked about this recently too, a lot. It's just in addition to having uh, more, youth and younger people and we were had made some plans unfortunately before covid yeah. to have a youth learning circle and that kind of thing um but but 
what goes along with that is a greater exploration and understanding of traditional ways of, of living, of being and traditional ceremony. Um, and so we have some people in our, in our midst here. That's not necessarily been a part of the Anglican church in our communities here in the past, but we do have a greater, I'd say, openness now mm -hmm. for experiencing traditional ceremony along with Christian um, ceremony, mm -hmm. uh, thinking about how these two roads are, like, are together, are, are, are walking side by side together. And I think um, we, along with, with, you know, thinking more about youth and younger people, to explore some of those realities and to be able to teach people that, that the traditional way of, of um, expressing spirituality and, and the Christian way following Jesus are not um, at odds with one another, but are connected to one another. And some, so I would like to see, I think we, we, I mean, we've talked about mm -hmm. that a lot, yeah. um, to see that more uh, in the forefront in the future. My doctoral work was in ritual. And so when I first came up here, I was all excited. And then I had to stop and sit back because people need to be on that journey on their own time. Mm -hmm. I think with the uh, self-determining Indigenous church, there are realities there that can be lived in a different way now. And so I think um, that is a, a direction we would like to see ourselves doing more, more teaching and training and supporting people who want to learn in those ways, bringing people in to do teaching. Because mm -hmm. of course, those are teachings that are passed down, not just like read from a book. And so... Hey. I would, we would love to facilitate more of that, um, to be back into the communities when we actually can get there. <laughs> and and like Lydia had, had mentioned and, and I had mentioned earlier, we are doing a lot of resource production. Mm -hmm. So we are going to be working on, or Lydia and I are going to be working on a new confirmation book, mm -hmm. um, taking again into account traditional ways of, of being and learning and understanding seven sacred teachings mm -hmm. to do um, with uh, confirmation people. Because here in many communities, almost everyone is baptized, mm -hmm. almost everyone is confirmed. So it's not unusual to have a confirmation service with like 20 to 30 kids being confirmed. Like that's wow. And with COVID, it might be even bigger because, you know, we've had to delay a couple yeah. of years. So, you know, if we can do teaching in those areas for the young people and, and, and help them understand who they are and who they are in Jesus, um, fully in Jesus, then I think that there is some you know, beautiful opportunity there to, uh, to live and preach the gospel in a way that is uh, culturally significant and, and contextually relevant. Awesome. Well, uh, before, before we close, and thank you so much for giving so much of your time today. Uh, but I had warned you ahead of time uh, of this one last bonus question. And I just thought maybe you'd have some ideas. Your college is named after Henry Budd and Henry Budd is often known as the apostle to the Cree people. Uh, he was an early missionary uh, in the North and did all sorts of work, wonderful work. And I just wonder, wondered what you thought faith might've meant to Henry Budd. Well, what I have, what I have heard through the comments that people make that uh, he, did, uh, he did what he had to do. He had to come and teach the uh, Aboriginal peoples about, you know, 
where we are now. A, uh, a very, it's a very good example for us as an Aboriginal people because it was a very important thing, you know, that the native person. And so by, by listening to her husband about the research that he did and all that, teaching the Aboriginal people about God. Yeah. Yeah, I think in reading Henry Budd's journals and helping Keith, uh, my husband, do the transcription, I have learned that I, I think I can say with confidence that uh, the idea of lived commitment, uh, faith as lived commitment, is, is Henry Budd. I mean, for him, faith would be all encompassing. Every single thing that you do, whether it's planting a garden, hoeing potatoes, chopping wood, doing fish, teaching Cree, teaching English, translating, um, burying, burying people, um, advocating for people with the Hudson's Bay Company. All of it was um, founded on a belief that the presence of Jesus Christ made a difference in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so everything that you do is an opportunity to reflect um, the reality of Jesus into people's lives and to bring people into a greater understanding of who Jesus is and how he lives and moves and you know has his being among a community. Mm -hmm. um, everything that Bud did would have been um, would have been everything he did uh, would have all been part of faith for him. It, there was no separation of a sacred and secular. There was no separation of white and Cree. Uh, Bud served Jesus to any person who came across his path, and he preached Jesus to any person who came across his path. Um, fully committed uh, to the, the work of Christ in the community. Thank you so much for that. And uh, once again, thank you so much for your time today. I really look forward to following the continued work of Henry Bud College and uh, both keeping up with both of you. Um, and yeah, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Ryan. And, and Henry Bud College has a Facebook page and a website if you want to learn a little bit more about the call and um, see what we're doing or, you know, make a donation if you feel so inclined. So uh, we appreciate always the support that we get from our bishop, who's our chancellor, as well as people across the country who um, see value in this work. Yes, absolutely. Please send money to Henry Bud College. All right. Take care, folks. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave a review and rating on iTunes and tell your friends.